You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Really understanding who and how the process is going to run to determine that you have a reasonably practical timeframe that's well-governed, well-documented, practiced, involves all the right executives for determining that it is actually material. So the challenge won't be, once I've determined it, I'm going to have four days to tell the SEC this happened. I think the challenge is, how do I have a defensible, a regulatory defensible approach for really governing that process for determining materiality? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares an interesting case concerning internet preservation law. I look at an article from Lawfare that ponders the cybersecurity insurance market. And later in the show, my conversation with Valerie Abend, She's Global Cyber Strategy Lead at Accenture. We're discussing the Securities and Exchange Commission's recently announced cyber regulations. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. All right, Ben, we've got some interesting topics to cover here. Why don't you start things off for us? So mine comes from the Volok Conspiracy blog on the Reason website, and it is written by a Berkeley professor who shall remain nameless. Uh, spoiler alert, it's Orrin Kerr. Uh, but really, it's, it's been a few weeks since I've shared one of his pieces, so okay. you know, we were due, right? Sure. <laughs> so this concerns a case that came out of a Nevada magistrate judge's opinion concerning uh, internet content preservation. So when agents, either in federal law enforcement or state law enforcement, think that a person might have committed a crime or there's evidence that they're involved in criminal activity, agents will order internet providers to make a copy of a person's entire account. So usually that's some type of social media account. It could be their email account. 
And then they store it away uh, so that the government, if it needs to access it later on for law enforcement purposes, is able to access it. Mm. But once the third party here has created the copy, then obviously um, the suspect, the person who's... uh, Accused of committing a crime doesn't have the opportunity to wipe that data clean. Oh, uh, so I it is see. a way to preserve internet data just in case uh, law enforcement needs that information for a criminal investigation. Okay. There is a federal statute. It is the Stored Communications Act, Section 2703F. Uh, for those nerds out there, usually when we talk about 2703, it's about 2703D. Uh, but a littler-known provision requires Internet providers to comply with these requests for preservation. Hmm. And as Orrin Kerr notes, this happens very frequently. Apparently in 2019, the last time this data was studied, about one in every 820 adults had one of their accounts copied for possible government use. Really? That really seems like a lot to me. I don't know about you. <laughs> that seems like a lot to me, too. And the person whose data is being copied never has any idea that this has taken place. Hmm. Uh, this happens just with the cooperation of the private company and uh, at the behest of law enforcement. So the government does need a warrant to uh, eventually search that data. Um, oh, I but see. so the warrant does come in at that point, uh-huh. but this, uh, practice of preservation allows the government to gain access to that data, um, that they would have not otherwise been able to access because presumably the suspect would be smart enough to delete it. And the, the, the service provider is obligated to do this by law. Right. Now that's actually one of the interesting elements of this case uh-huh. is, the word used in the statute is a request, uh, but if you don't comply with a the request, there are penalties for these private companies. I see. So <laughs> it's sort of like when the government requests that uh, you know you come with them with their guns blazing. Right, or uh, I was going to say when my mom used to request that I clean my room, but you're, you're just much more forceful. Yeah, no, I, I like your example, though. I mean, it's it's a request in name only. Right, like, if you right. don't comply with the request, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So this brings us to a case that came out of uh, Nevada. It is concerning a criminal defendant named Mr. King, who was accused of trafficking in child pornography. It's actually a terrible story. The mm. victim of this abuse, and her mother went to law enforcement. She said that she was being uh, abused by somebody. She was underage. Uh, And then through uh, some pretty good investigative police work, they were able to find this guy, but all of the evidence was circumstantial. Mm. Uh, They saw in one of the pictures that he was wearing a pair of distinctive white shoes, and then they went to the neighborhood where he lived, ended up stumbling upon a house with a bunch of roommates, uh, saw somebody wearing those shoes. That ended up being their level of suspicion. So certainly that wasn't probable cause uh, to retain this person's devices. Hmm. So they get his device uh, and they search a couple of accounts that he has on uh, a couple of uh, encrypted messaging applications. Mm -hmm. And after going through the process, they get enough evidence to charge him. And he is challenging the criminal charges here and asking for evidence to be suppressed, saying that this is an illegal seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Hmm. So there are kind of two questions here. The Fourth Amendment only applies against government action. uh, And here it's the private company that technically takes the action here. So the first question is, 
Does the Fourth Amendment apply at all here? Is there government involvement? Is the private company acting at the behest of the government? Right. Well, the government, the private company, wouldn't do this if not for the government requesting it. They right? certainly would not, uh, and that's not how the judge sees it in this case. Basically, the judge says, as it relates to these companies, they are O M E G L E. Do you know how you pronounce that? Omegli. No. no. I'll go with with Omegli and text now. Uh, Those are the two applications that were at issue here. Uh, Basically, the magistrate judge here says that they do not qualify as the government. One of the uh, things that the judge cites is that the government is simply requesting a copy of the data be made. Of course, as we've noted and as Orrin Kerr notes, uh, it is a request in name only. Really, they are being compelled. I mean, they're being forced to do this. And as you said, this data would not be co- uh, copied without the government's involvement. Right. Another thing that this judge says is that the individual here, the criminal suspect, still has full dominion over his account, uh, even when the um, government receives a copy or the third party, the private company here, has made a copy. Uh, but that shouldn't uh, disabuse the idea that the this is some type of government action. I mean, if government had access to our physical property by really compelling a private party, any type of third party, to grant access, right. I think all of us would consider that to be some type of government involvement. It's like saying that, uh, you know, if, if the government asks the building manager to unlock your apartment, that... Uh, what it seems to me like this judge is saying is that the, that's not a that's not the government's responsibility because the building manager was the it. one who opened the apartment door, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems completely <laughs> illogical to me, and I think it did to Professor Kerr as well. I think that's <laughs> actually a perfect example because right. presumably the, the government in that situation uh, has the full force of the government, meaning some guns. Uh, right. They can force the person to open that door through... Uh, a lot of pressure. I mean, the the government is big and can do a lot of bad things to you. So yeah. when they request something, it's not just, hey, can you please do this, if not no hard feelings. It's <laughs> do this uh, or else you are going to get in trouble. Yeah. Then the second part of this opinion, the judge concludes that even if these providers were state actors or were acting at the behest of the state, running a copy of the account uh, that the defendant could not control doesn't amount to a seizure. If the rest of our federal court system copied the reasoning of this magistrate judge, as Professor Kerr says, then the government could just order anyone's account to be copied without limit because there would be no seizure with the government making these copies. Hmm. Uh, And this just seems like a pretty fairly uh, poor legal reasoning in my view. Yes, the internet providers do have possession of the user data at store in their servers, but in Professor Kerr's mind, I, I completely agree with this. Why would that mean that making of a copy, uh, making a copy of this data, doesn't count as a seizure? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he posits this really interesting hypothetical. It's actually quite similar to yours, um, but let's say there's drugs wrapped in aluminum foil in your freezer in an apartment that you share with your roommate. Yeah, and the government goes to your roommate and says, "Go into your apartment, go inside the freezer." you'll find a package of drugs in aluminum foil. Bring the package to us now. Otherwise, we'll arrest you for obstruction of justice. Mm. Obviously, your roommate would get that package from the freezer and give it to the government. I think all of us in those circumstances would agree that those drugs have been seized for Fourth Amendment purposes, even though the individual user technically still has access to that freezer and those drugs. The fact that 
the huh. roommate in this hypothetical or the third party here has common authority over the contents uh, of this information, it just doesn't seem relevant to the Fourth Amendment question as to whether there has been uh, a seizure. So could so okay. So could they make the case? Could the in the government in this case? Could they make the case then that they did not seize the the items that they were in fact surrendered? Well, how would you describe that distinction? Because you're saying that they were voluntarily surrendered and not seized. Correct. Because as you say, the roommate has access to the freezer. The government has requested air quotes. Right. <laughs> right. I I can't help. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but this is really reminding me of the case we're seeing right now, where um, uh, I think it's the NSA who's lobbying Congress to say, please don't take away our ability to buy location data from third parties. Right. You know, like it's a similar, it's like a, it's an end around. It is an end around. Yeah. And you could say, yes, they're just collecting the state of the government still needs a warrant to search it. Right. But it is still the government compelling these companies to retain data that could otherwise be deleted because otherwise it right. would be in the full dominion and control of the criminal defendant. It's not. And it's not because the government has gotten involved using their authority under Section uh, 2703F. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I just don't think that is a meaningful distinction. It seems quite clear to me that a seizure has taken place because they've literally, and I know we don't like to lean heavily on the dictionary definition of words, but they have <laughs> seized a copy of somebody's account. It is mm. in. It is something that has been taken. It is not fully under the dominion and control of that criminal defendant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think, in everyday parlance and in the legal world should count as a, as a seizure. If we try to put ourselves in the mind of this uh, Nevada magistrate judge, where do we think he's coming from? Well, uh, there's kind of the cynical view of it and the non-cynical view of it. The non-cynical view is that this is just a good faith reading of Fourth Amendment case law, Mm. that we don't really have a lot of precedent on internet preservation, and that there are some cases when you uh, analogize it to the physical world and you're kind of trying to suss out what a seizure means. I think you could conceivably argue that this is not a seizure. Uh, I happen to disagree with that argument, but it does match up somewhat with Fourth Amendment case law about a third party having access to something, even though the primary person still can access it him or herself, even though I think that's kind of missing the forest for the trees here. So that's one element of it. The more cynical view would just be because we went through the process of discovering, uh, going through a criminal investigation and realized that this guy has been trafficking in child pornography and is a bad dude and has uh, sexually abused this, this young girl. Why would you want to let this criminal defendant off on a constitutional technicality? I see. This is just a magistrate judge, um, not to diminish the role of a magistrate judge. They're awesome. I wish I could be one uh, someday, but uh, this will go to a federal district court judge um, who will have the chance to hear an appeal on this motion. And then if uh, either party is not happy with that appeal, it could go back up to the federal courts of appeals. So we need to stay tuned here. Yeah. Uh, But this is just what what I thought was a really interesting case. Uh, I think not a lot of people realize that the government has the ability to mandate internet preservation Mm -hmm. uh, and that it happens with kind of alarming frequency. It's hard to conceptualize one out of every 82 adults in this country, but that's a lot of people. Uh, And, you know, 
given that our podcast has so many listeners, I'm sure that means <laughs> many of you have had your uh, data copied pursuant to Section 2703F. So, is there any any way for us to find out? Could we make a like a FOIA request or something? I don't think so. I think the first of all, the FOIA requests would take forever. Yeah. Uh, and I think I I'm not an expert in administrative law, but I think probably this would fall under one of the exceptions of FOIA if it was an active criminal investigation. Ah. Uh, though, don't quote me on that one. But yeah, I mean, I think. I don't think the person whose data has been collected is ever really privy to what goes on between the government and the private company. Wow. All right. Oof. There's a lot to unpack there. A isn't lot there? to unpack there. I thought a very interesting <laughs> it uh, is. case. It is. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. My story this week uh, comes from the folks over at Lawfare. Uh, this is an article written by Tom uh, Jonsmeyer, I believe is how you pronounce his, his last name. And I apologize in advance if I got it wrong. And this is a, oh gosh, I guess it's fair to say listeners of the show would know that this is a pet, uh, topic of mine. Sure is. <laughs> yeah. Cyber insurance. And this article is, is titled, if cyber is uninsurable, the United States has a major strategy problem. And this, uh, the core of this is the notion of whether or not Ultimately, private companies are going to be able to insure uh, cyber for you know for other private companies. So, so private insurance companies is cyber is the ins- is the cyber insurance market viable? I guess is what I'm getting at here. Or as, as I the eight ball might say, all signs point to no. Well, and that's interesting uh, in this article. But as I have often wondered, uh, will cyber insurance go the way of flood insurance, right. where it is not a good business to be in, and so ultimately you need to have a, a federal backstop here. And uh, this article unpacks a, a lot of the, the different elements of that. Uh, the author here talks to a number of um, executives in the insurance world. You know, the recently released uh, U.S. National Cybersecurity Strategy, one of the focuses of it is private sector, public-private partnerships and private sector support, and that includes the insurance industry. But that strategy also uh, says that they need to explore the need for a federal insurance response to a catastrophic cyber event to support the cyber insurance market, which I think is interesting as well. Um, this article points out the notion of a ca- what would a catastrophic cyber event look like? What if the internet, the entire internet, went down for a week. Yeah, kind of a cyber one. Extending the flood insurance metaphor would be like a cyber Katrina where Mm -hmm. an entire subset of the internet comes offline because of a cyber incident. It's so catastrophic economically that the private sector is unable to recoup the losses. Right. Yeah. Right. And one of the uh, executives that they talked to for this story said that uh, he's avoiding coverage for cyber. In other words, avoiding providing coverage for cyber because... He says that uh, insurance is a promise, and he doesn't want to make promises that he can't keep, which is an interesting perspective, I think a good one. Yeah, (laughs) kind of scary from a policy perspective, but I mean, you understand it from the perspective of these companies because uh, they are actuaries, they're evaluating risk, and the risk, given all of the threats out there, is quite high. Yeah. Yeah. it seems like we're going to have to eventually develop a policy that combines private sector tools with a federal backstop. And I right. think that's what they're getting at here. 
I don't know if you've ever heard anything about the insurance-linked securities market. Go on. <laughs> I know very little about it, okay. uh, except in what I read just in preparing for this <laughs> for this segment. But basically, it would be a way for um, specialized investment managers to provide more capital to recoup cyber risks. Mm. Um, I don't know exactly how that would work, but that would be a private sector-driven solution. Yeah. Uh, And then failing that, you could have at least a de minimis federal backstop the way we do with flood insurance, although the National Flood Insurance Program, uh, to put it mildly, has not been an overwhelming success. No, I know. I mean, it's lousy insurance. It's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's expensive insurance that doesn't cover very much. Right, right. But you're required to have it if you, if you have a home that is in a flood zone, you got, and you have a mortgage, a federally insured mortgage, you're required to have it. So that's that. Interesting uh, items from this article that I was not aware of. A lot of insurance companies uh, turn around and reinsure their risk. Uh, so, in other words, I sell you cyber insurance and it includes X, Y, and Z. But for the really catastrophic stuff that I've covered you for, I am then going to go buy a policy from another insurance company who's bundling together you know, these catastrophic policies from lots of different insurance providers. Doesn't this feel very 2007, 2008 to you? (laughs) I just feel like that's ringing alarm bells. Like the house of cards will end up falling on itself if there is actually a cyber catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, Because the insurers won't be able to pay. Then those who insure the insurers won't be able to pay. And then the entire system comes crashing down. I'm just throwing that out there as a yeah. flagging that as a potential problem. Well, and again, to get back to the federal response, this article points to um, there's a policy uh, in place uh, in response to the 9-11 attacks. There's a terrorism policy uh, that is a backstop for if your building fell down because terrorists attacked it, uh, rather than just relying on private coverage, there is now a federal response in place as well. And so the government has done this, right? right with right. this, with flood insurance, you know, so uh, it's possible. Um, I was, however, um, interested to see that uh, I think seven out of the eight high-level insurance executives that the author of this article interviewed were actually quite bullish about cyber insurance and, and felt as though it is viable that we have enough information to know what the risks are, that the day-to-day risks aren't that bad. Uh, yes, the, the major catastrophic risks are still an issue, but for day-to-day business and covering people for their regular cyber insurance needs, they seem to feel like they have a pretty good handle on it and that they understand the basic numbers behind it. Yeah, that was far more bullish than I would have expected, too. You know, I don't think that necessarily is reassuring for the type of scenario that's contemplated here, where mm-hmm. there's something so catastrophic that it's not just an individual company or government agency making a claim, which is something that, as you say, the companies are pretty good at, at pricing out in terms of risk, but it's something that's systemic. Right. That's where I think the issue comes in, and that's where I think we need some type, potentially, at least at some point in the future, some type of federal backstop the way we do flood insurance. Yeah. Uh, I just think when you look at risks uh, in a broader, writ large perspective, Mm -hmm. it's something that could potentially affect the entire country the way 
some type of massive hurricane could affect the economy of the entire country and certainly the physical in- infrastructure of a large community. Right. So with a risk that large, I, th- I think it kind of behooves the government to at least consider getting involved as a backstop. Yeah. They point at um, like the Colonial Pipeline uh, issue as being sort of a wake-up call for folks in the industry. But my sense is that there has not been a cyber Hurricane Katrina so far or a Hurricane Andrew, you know, something that just strips the landscape of, of all buildings. That big, right. You know, everybody talks about a, either a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor if you're talking about adversarial types of things. But I don't – I mean, do you – when you think about it, do you think we've, we've come close to anything like that? No, I mean, what scares me about the Colonial Pipeline situation is that was relatively small-scale uh, attack. Mm-hmm. It only affected a single company. That company happens to supply most of the gasoline on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Right. And it was extremely disruptive. I mean, for the first time since the 1970s, people, at least in parts of the East Coast, were dealing with massive gas lines. Right. Uh, so if something that small in scale can have such uh, serious kinetic effects— it's something that should keep us up at night because yeah. it's that's still a relatively small company, all things considered. I mean, it's uh, a large corporation, but it's not like they attacked one of the you know absolute biggest oil companies or one of our larger utilities. Like it was uh, still a pretty limited in scope in terms of the original attack. Right. So the fact that it had such a large impact, I think, absolutely should open our eyes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to this article in the show notes. Again, this is from the folks over at Lawfare, and uh, it's, it's definitely worth a read. I have to admit, say, admit, uh, brag about, I don't know, that uh, it it really did um, help me recalibrate my understanding of how cyber insurance works, uh, which also leads to me recalibrating how I think about this and approach this. You know, I think I still think the analogy to flood insurance is a good one, but uh, I'll say my understanding of it, thanks to this article, is a lot more nuanced. Yeah, it's a great article with a lot of useful information and very well-researched. I think they talked to a lot of people who are involved in the cyber insurance market. Uh, So it was somewhat reassuring, as we said, to hear that I think they're getting better at pricing these risks. So I found that aspect of it encouraging for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. As I said, we will have a link to that in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. 
Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Valerie Abend. She is the global cyber strategy lead at Accenture. And we were discussing the Securities and Exchange Commission's recently announced cyber regulations. Here's my conversation with Valerie Abend. Back in February of 2022, the SEC proposed new rules to help shareholder transparency around cybersecurity. That includes incidents as well as how companies govern and manage cyber risks. They took a lot of time to consider public input. And so uh, what they've done is they finalize those rules through an SEC vote. And those rules cover uh, both incident materiality, and so whether or not an incident has had real significant impact on a company and how you would communicate that in a public way through your filings that you would do as a publicly held company with the SEC, as well as how do you disclose on an annual basis Uh, how you're managing cyber risk and cyber risk management across the company. Um, What is your board, your board of uh, directors responsibilities around oversight of that cyber risk management? And then, you know, a little bit about what you would do in terms of if you needed to have a delay, uh, particularly because of national security, public security interests. One of the things here that that caught my eye and I think uh, is getting a lot of attention is this idea that uh, organizations will be required to report an incident within four days. But then there's the little the little uh, kicker which says within four days of determining it is material. I, I can just uh, imagine in-house counsel uh, licking their lips at the 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 uh, the variability of that word material. Yes, yeah, so I, I think it's really important to hit this point up front. It's not about four days of having an incident. Uh-huh. The requirement is that you have a reasonably practical time frame for determining whether or not an incident is material or not, and that you have a pretty good process then to do that, which we should dig into. Mm. Uh, but it's really once you determine that something is material, you have four days to report it. And what's the response been to this? I think generally people who work in publicly held companies, all of the people that I've talked with, both you know, CEOs all the way through their chief information security officers say, you know, we already have to report uh, when we have a cyber incident that is material. And so having four days to actually make that report happen isn't a big challenge. I think where the gap is, is really understanding who and how the process is going to run to determine that you have a reasonably practical time frame that's well-governed, well-documented, practiced, involves all the right executives for determining that it is actually material. So the challenge won't be, once I've determined it, I'm going to have four days to tell the SEC this happened. I think the challenge is, how do I have a defensible, a regulatory defensible approach for really governing that process for determining materiality, not only in the face of when an incident has occurred, but also over time, Hmm. because incidents change over time and maybe... You thought it wasn't material, but now maybe suddenly it has become material because of intellectual property that maybe was now determined to have been taken, whereas before you didn't realize it was, or perhaps you're facing regulatory fines that you 
didn't know you were going to face, or perhaps the attribution of who did the attack has changed, and all of those things could determine you to have to reevaluate whether there is material and then report. And has the SEC indicated that that they'll be having scrutiny over this? So after an event to to go in and say, was the pathway towards the determination that this is material, was that reasonable and timely? So you've hit it spot on, Dave. This is the thing. When you have an incident, that's when all these things become challenging, hmm. right? The final rule for a regulator is not going to give you the example of what best practice looks like. It's not going to tell you exactly how your process should go. The problem will come when you have an incident and maybe you didn't think it was material and they come in and they realize it was material and the reporting didn't happen and you didn't have a really good process. And the SEC says, show me all the documentation. Show me how you made that decision. Show me who was involved. How did you practice that so that you had a good process that you evolved over time based on the risk of your company and the threats it's facing? And that will be the challenge is, is, you know, a lot of folks who don't go through that process before they have an incident will be caught flat-footed. I know another concern that's been voiced is this notion that organizations may have to reveal too much information that in the process, in in the timeliness of of revealing that the uh, incident has occurred, that that could be an opportunity for other attackers to take advantage of that intelligence. So the SEC made some pretty significant changes between the proposed rule and what they ultimately voted out to be the final regulation. Mm. And one of the things that they changed, which I think was really, you know, smart, was how much information, how much detail in this public filing you have to include about what was attacked. Are you still vulnerable so that you don't provide a roadmap, right, to the bad guys about what they should continue to attack you on or uh, even attack others on. So they did narrow what you have to disclose in the face of an incident. And I think that was really smart. And they got a lot of comment from, you know, public companies and, you know, from the from the industry about, about that exact thing. How do we do the right thing to provide shareholder transparency, but how do we also manage the risk of further exposure to that company or any other companies. Can you give me some insights on how the SEC generally comes at these sorts of things? I mean, when it comes to their relationship with the organizations that they regulate, do they tend to be collaborative? Do they tend to be adversarial? Where do they land? Well, I don't know that I would pigeonhole the SEC versus other regulators in different ways inside Mm. the United States. We have a very strict approach in the United States around how much collaboration regulators can do with private industry. And honestly, that's a bit of the challenge we have in our construct versus other countries that have different approaches. As a former regulator myself, uh, I remember, you know, the challenges I faced where in order to get comment, you have to really put things down on paper, put it out to the public, And then there's this formal process, and it makes it harder to be collaborative, as you say. The sort of ways in which we tried to address that in the financial sector was by creating what is a public-private partnership, whereby the regulators all come together um, underneath the guise of the sector-specific agency, which is the U.S. Department of the Treasury, and they would come together in meetings uh, under certain types of 
relationships that are legally allowed to with the private sector under the Financial Services Sector Coordinated Council. But ultimately, when you're putting out a reg, it's very hard to be collaborative except for this this comment period. Mm. I do think there are ways, which I've seen in the past, where industry can kind of help prompt even more collaboration just by convening groups that then kind of are able to share messages back to regulators. So if you look back at how when the PCAOB, the Public Accounting Oversight Board, was created, uh, there was a lot of, of conversation by what was then the big four accounting firms having town halls all around the country to say, how do we restore faith and trust in public accounting? That then further reformed the PCAOB about what they needed to do. So what are your recommendations then for folks who, who are in leadership positions in, in a public company, a CISO, maybe a board member, uh, with these new rules, uh, what sort of things should they be concerned with? So I think there are, are a few challenges. And the first thing I would always say on this one is because they did soften you know, various provisions between what they had originally proposed versus what they voted, voted as final, First thing I say is, I think a lot of folks are going to sort of let their foot off the gas, and I don't think that's a great plan. As we talked about earlier, when you have an incident, that's when you're going to get caught with like, oh, we didn't really have a well-defined process and we thought we did. And that's not just on the incident materiality part. That's also on the sort of two other big areas of the of the regulation, one of which is just your ongoing day-to-day cyber risk management processes. So in the rule, you have to disclose every year about how you're managing cyber risk. That's really smart. It doesn't require too much detail. But, you know, if you have an incident and in that you don't really have all your details really worked out and the SEC comes to do an investigation, that's where you're going to have a challenge. And so having a very strong cyber risk management framework with policies and procedures and clear ability to actually quantifiably describe what are your higher risks in the context of your specific business and how you're not just maturing your information security function, but actually holding all members of the C-suite accountable for their specific role in managing cyber risk. To me, that's going to be, you know, I think, a big area that a lot of companies need to focus on. And I, if I were a CISO, I would partner with my CEO to see how we can do that, particularly working with this management committee that's described in the rule. So they're, in the rule, they actually tell the board that their job is to oversee this cyber risk management committee or an executive risk management committee that's handling cyber. And so I, if I were a CISO, I would partner with the CEO and with the board to really strengthen that management committee, all the members of that committee, make sure it's clear what their responsibilities are, and had very well documented and practiced. Yeah, you know, you mentioned documenting. That that really strikes me that it's in an organization's best interest here to be documenting things along the way and not just when an incident occurs. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. I used to say in the regulator, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that just, it does matter, right? It, it makes it so much more clear People put pen to paper and say, oh, that's those are my responsibilities. Oh, that's what the um, mission of this management committee is. Oh, this is how frequently we meet. These governance documents matter quite a bit. And 
Also, how you're measuring and reporting cyber risk, that um, how you look at your key risk indicators, your key performance indicators, making sure that that is tuned appropriately over time and, and in writing, going up through this management committee, up to the board. I think that's really important. You know, in terms of broader trends of, of what this indicates uh, in terms of like a trajectory that the SEC is indicating here, any thoughts on, on where we're heading with um, cybersecurity and, and public companies? I think that what we're seeing is an increasingly complex regulatory landscape. As a matter of fact, uh, the White House just released a request for information around regulatory harmonization And with an eye, not just in what's happening in the United States, but internationally as well. And we have very different approaches in the United States versus Europe, versus, you know, Asia Pacific and and other parts of the world in how we regulate generally, but specifically in cybersecurity. And that is a challenge. I, I think that's what, that's the reality. I don't see it changing. And so as we look at not just the SEC, but what other regulators are doing. So for example, CISA has, you know, a requirement for critical infrastructure to report. CISA also is able to share that information with other agencies. Are they going to give a heads up to the SEC even before you do if you're experiencing an incident and have already reported that to CISA? So I think there are various issues around regulatory complexity that a lot of publicly held companies need to consider going forward. I, I sense a bit of a, a subtext as you're talking about comparing our regulatory regime with with others around the world. I mean, is this is this something that uh, puts us at a competitive disadvantage, or is is this simply the way that we've decided to run things? What's your take there? Well, it's sort of the nature of just how we operate. I don't know if it's a, an advantage or disadvantage. It depends on how you look at competition, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, in Europe, they raise the bar across everyone all at once. So you have the NIS2 directive, you have DORA, you have the forthcoming Digital Services Act. Those regulations cover all of Europe across every industry all at once and set the bar at the same level, which you know, look at, let's face it, we're operating in an ecosystem. We're highly dependent on third and fourth parties and beyond. And so the idea that you can raise everybody up at once is is pretty important. Uh, we regulate more from an industry lens, industry by industry. The SEC rule is all industries that are publicly held company, but the reality is that the industries, if you look at banking versus capital markets, uh, and the SEC also oversees capital markets and has an, has a, has a regulation specific to them now. So, um, but you know, if you look at TSA and what they do in there and transportation and and with pipelines, like it's very industry by industry specific. And you know, it depends on how you consider competition. On the one hand, I think that raising the bar for everyone is really important because we're also interdependent and increasingly so. On the other hand, uh, I think it's really important that when you go in and you actually regulate inside of a bank or inside of a pipeline, you actually understand the specific risk context with which they're operating in. There's been talk about uh, delays from attorney generals and, and what companies should do about that. What can you share with us there? Right. So the SEC says you can file a request for delay that you would 
basically get the agreement with the attorney general if there is belief that the incident uh, shouldn't be disclosed to the public because there are national security and public security implications. Mm. The question is, how do you do that? Like, how do you get the attorney general on the line to agree with that? And that is why we always encourage companies to work very closely with the FBI, with law enforcement, and that way you have that relationship so that they can help you in that circumstance if you truly believe that there are national security implications from a breach. I think that in some instances, the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security may proactively reach out to you that something is going on they believe it has national security interests and you might get an alert from them. And that I think probably smooths out that issue for you or hopefully would. But if it's the reverse, if it's your company determining it, how they do that is still unclear. Ben, what do you think? It was a fascinating conversation. I think since you had the conversation with her, uh, that rule was finalized and is now in place. Mm. Uh, what's really interesting to me is it seems like the big stakeholders in the private sector are quite supportive of this SEC regulation, maybe because, uh, as she notes, the regulation was altered uh, from its original form, which had a little bit more, uh, or I, I guess more burdensome requirements on these companies. But to have this buy-in, for these rules that are uh, attempting to hold publicly traded companies accountable for cyber incidents or at least uh, improve situational awareness and knowledge of uh, attacks, I think is very promising. Yeah. So, um, And she's certainly an expert on, on this topic, and I, I found the interview um, very informative. Yeah. Uh, again, our thanks to Valerie Aubin from Accenture for joining us. Uh, boy, great guest, you know. <laughs> she has like... Valerie is just has that great combination of, of expertise in her in her area, but also being really able to explain it in a way that, you know, folks like me who aren't experts can really understand what's going on here. So I really appreciate that uh, that rare combination. And we appreciate her taking the time for us. Now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.